Welcome everyone to another edition of Governed by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Lupold. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. So the last several weeks, we have been covering the topic of theonomy, or God's law. We did about uh, three episodes on that. And what I want to start now is kind of a maybe probably two-part series um, on the concept of abortion. Um, I think this is relevant in light of some of the recent developments in our own culture, such as with Roe v. Wade potentially being overturned. But I don't want to just offer political commentary. I'm sure many of you have heard enough of that. What I wanted to do was to look back in history at the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans and see what I could gather as far as the issue of abortion. How is it that other cultures handled this? Did it exist in the past? Um, What did they do? How did they respond to it? Are there some principles or lessons that still apply today? And what I have found is eerily similar to what's been going on today in our culture. Although we put a different kind of spin on it, um, many of the arguments are the same, some of the methods are the same, and some of the beliefs are the same, and some of the criticisms are the same. So we have a lot to cover. Uh, Maybe we'll get through all of it um, in one or two uh, episodes. But first, I do want to begin with a a law of the day. And today it is Exodus 21, verses 22 through 25. And here's what it says. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, But there is no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So that law essentially refers to the act of causing a miscarriage by physical violence. So the concept here, two men are fighting, one of, the, one of the wives is getting involved, and she is hit. And the person that hit her, if, that, if there's damage that is caused, now the, the text here does not specify whether there's damage to the woman or to her children. I think it applies to both. And if there's no harm, that's fine, but there's still a fine imposed by the woman's husband, basically suing for damages. And the judges will determine if he shall pay and, and how much of it he should pay in order to make restitution for what has been done. Even though there's no damage, the fact is that uh, the baby has come out and it wasn't supposed to. <laughs> and it's, it was a very dangerous situation. Now, if there is harm, the individual has to pay life for life. So it's basically the eye for eye, tooth for tooth passage is not really about personal vengeance. That happens later on. Later on, the Pharisees will twist that, and that's why Jesus will cr- criticize them for it. The issue is the punishment should fit the crime. That's the intent of the eye for eye, tooth for tooth. It should not be an eye for a tooth. It should it should not be imbalanced where you were damaged in a little way, and your revenge is much more than that. So, What needs to happen is that whatever damage has been done, the punishment should fit that. If the woman was was killed, 
certainly a life for life, the man who hit her is at least guilty of manslaughter and maybe maybe more. Same thing if the child is killed. If there's harm done to the unborn child, then that child is viewed as as having value and the person who caused basically that child to die needs to be punished accordingly. So that is a case law. These This is an example of a case law. It's an example. And the, the judges of Israel would have used this example to help them judge cases. So it's not the case that this law only applies when uh, men fight each other and not if the fight is between a bunch of women. You know, let's say a pregnant woman gets into a fight with another woman and there's kicking and punching and the other woman causes her the pregnant woman to have a miscarriage. This law applies. So these kinds of laws are, are case laws. They're examples that you use to provide guidance and principles in bringing about judgment. But it all falls under the commandment, thou shalt not murder. So that's how we can understand this law today. And interestingly, many of our laws in our country today have penalties imposed upon those who would cause through murder or through assault, the death of an unborn child. So if a, if a pregnant woman is murdered, in many places, the person can be charged for two murders, for two crimes. He killed two people. And I believe that is perfectly legitimate and justified and in accordance with God's law. So that is our law of the day. It's pretty clear-cut law. I think there's much application to be done with this law, but let's now continue by looking at the value of children and the issue of abortion and infanticide in ancient Greece and ancient Rome. Now, before I go any further, I will be covering some difficult topics, and so if there are young ears listening, I would maybe encourage you to to tune in at a different time or listen to this um, some other place, because I am going to quote some difficult things and touch on some very difficult things as well. But let's begin first with the issue of contraception. Did the ancients try to control how many children they had and if they got pregnant or not? Now, it does seem to be the case that they did use potions. They, they tried to find various herbs and flowers that if mixed together in certain quantities and in certain combinations, would cause, well, would either um, increase fertility or prevent pregnancy. Uh, just like they would also have medicines that they would use to make men and women more fertile and whatnot. So they tried. The ancients tried. Certainly, we are much more successful today with the birth control pill and other pills, but it is not a new thing. The idea of trying to control or to enable is not a new thing. Now, sometimes it was successful. There is some evidence to suggest that there were certain potions, medicinal ingredients that could cause miscarriages. I got some information from a Greek gynecologist named Seranus who lived around 100 AD. So he has some interesting things that he shares in his writings. But there's not too much in the way of evidence of success with regards to contraception. Of course, those kinds of potions were typically only able to be afforded by the, the wealthy, but most of the time, 
what they practiced was either abortion or infanticide, exposure. And we'll start with abortion first. Now, it was practiced by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and the Egyptians. Again, like I said, there were various potions that could and were known to cause, or potentially cause, a miscarriage or an abortion to end the pregnancy. Surgical abortion was also known. Serranus mentions it, and we'll talk later about uh, the Christian Tertullian, who describes in detail an instrument used by the Romans to perform abortions. There were some superstitions involved, of course. Uh, You can read about how astrology was used to kind of tell you which day was the best day to have an abortion to increase the chances of survival. Active abortion was used by prostitutes, the poor, but also by the prominent and the wealthy, which is surprising, but I think uh, you'll understand as we explain why shortly. Now, those who were wealthy could find the right doctors and the right drugs in order to have a more successful chance of an abortion. So, But due to the danger of abortion, and it was risky, especially for the poor and for the prostitutes, they would prefer to use exposure. Just have the child and put it out of the city or expose it uh, in a public place. Just basically abandon the child. Now, both the wealthy and the poor aborted their children for economic reasons. So the poor had a mindset, many of them, that they were not capable of supporting children or that they didn't want the children to live in the kind of poverty that they were living in. So they viewed it as a mercy, a mercy upon the child to kill it, to expose it, or they just did not have the ability to provide themselves So they didn't want to become even more impoverished, so they killed it. Interestingly, the wealthy did the same thing, although not because they maybe could not support the child, but they didn't want to divide the inheritance among more children. So how it would work in ancient Rome is that every child was entitled, per Roman law, to an inheritance. And the more children you had the more you had to divide up the inheritance per the children. So, in many cases, the wealthy would have abortions or would expose their children so as to keep the wealth from being diluted, okay? And so that the children that did exist could have a better life than the children that were coming into the world. And there are actually very interesting cases where children who were a a kind of, uh, I guess, maybe teenage or adult children, they basically wanted their mother to have an an abortion or expose the child because they did not want that child to take away from their inheritance. So that was actually motivated by already existing children. And then some people wanted an an abortion in order to maintain their looks. They didn't want their body to be uh, changed through pregnancy. But abortion was not as common as exposure or infanticide because it's the easiest and safest way for a mother to get rid of a child. Abortion, like I said, was very risky and very costly. Um, Exposure was used mostly by the poor but could be used by the rich, and it was the best way to get rid of unwanted children. And this is a very long history um, in in the world. Um, In general, boys were preferred to be kept over girls. The poet... Poe Sidibus 
I believe I'm saying that correctly, I hope, a Greek poet in 300 BC said this. He said, a son is always raised, even if one is poor. A daughter is exposed, even if one is rich. So again, the issue of having to divide the inheritance or to pay a dowry. Because when those girls grow up and they get married, the fa- the family, the father of the girl, pays the husband, pays um, pays the other family to take her. So he loses money if he has a girl. Of course, unhealthy babies or deformed babies were discarded. Um, to ha- To have a baby that had health issues was considered a bad omen, and they were viewed as a burden on society. And this happened a lot in, if you remember, Sparta was one of the more ancient cultures, ancient Sparta, in which children were exposed on purpose. In fact, it was state-issued, it was um, state-ordained. When a child was born, it was presented to the elders, the, the, the government of Sparta. And if the child was sickly or weak, it had to be exposed. It had to be discarded. They only wanted to keep the healthy and the strong. So what are some of the methods of exposure? Or I should say infanticide. Well, one more drastic method was drowning or str- or strangling the child. Um, but that wasn't as common as as abandonment or exposure. Um, and abandoned children are called foundlings. So that's an interesting term that I had learned reading these sources. So abandoning, exposing. And, you know, that would be depositing them into a public area, usually a, pu- a public place, um, because it's hard for the parents in a lot of cases to do it themselves. So sometimes they would get a slave or a midwife to take the child and to expose it. And by putting it in a public place, you did give it a chance to survive because it could be picked up by those who are passing by and you would leave the child in maybe a basket or just a a little box or the clothing, swaddling, and you would put, a lot of times the family would put a a mark of recognition, like a piece of jewelry, um, an heirloom with the child, maybe in the hopes that, that the child could be recognized later on in life if the child keeps that item and grows up uh, with it. So some um, some foundlings, some abandoned children were taken in and raised as adopted children. They could do that. Some were raised as slaves. Okay, Some were raised as prostitutes. And some were raised as gladiators, to be gladiators in the Colosseum. Sadly, many others were just eaten by wild animals, dogs, or birds, or they froze to death due to the exposure of the elements. Now, what were some initial limits on this? Well, first, in ancient Rome, the one of the primary laws was called paterfamilias, or father of the house. So fathers, under Roman law, had almost unlimited authority over their children. Um, fathers could choose to kill their children, typically up to a certain age, uh, not like when they were, you know, young children or you know, four, five, six years old or, or teenagers. But pretty early on for the first uh, several months of life or several years, fathers had authority over their children to kill them if they wanted to. And mothers had to abide by the father's decision. So the mothers almost had no rights, pretty much, in this. No say in the matter. 
This was true in Greece, by the way, but especially true in ancient Rome. And he could choose, the father could choose, whether to kill his child or not. Now, most early laws against abortion or against infanticide were actually focused on the father's power. So, so here was the issue. Abortion sometimes was punished, not because it was a, a murder of the child, not because the child had any rights, but because it was a wrong done to the father. So if the father wanted an abortion or wanted the baby to die, no problem. If the father wanted the baby to live and the mother killed it, there's a problem because it would be viewed as an attempt to undermine his authority and his power. So an example is given by the Roman politician Cicero, who lived around 50 BC, and he described in his writings a woman being executed because she had an abortion through taking drugs. So again, she took a potion and she had an abortion, lost a child. She killed her husband's child for the sake of the heirs. This is, I mentioned this earlier, the heirs that already existed did not want another child in the picture to dilute their inheritance. And he says this, Cicero says this, he says, she had cheated the father of his hopes, his name of continuity, his family of its support, his home of an heir and the republic of a citizen. So the issue though, is that she took away or violated the rights of the father. It's not really a concern for the child. The issue is the father's power and authority. And if you mess with that, you will get punished. Now, what was the status of a child, unborn child, I should say, in the time of the Greeks and the Romans? Well, a fetus, which basically is a, uh, a Latin word for unborn child, the, the words that we use today, very scientific, embryo, fetus. Well, embryo derives from the Greek, uh, embryos, okay? Fruit of the womb or unborn child. And embryo in Greek means fetus in Latin. And fetus also just means unborn offspring. That's, that's it. Nothing about, you know, eight weeks or 10 days or whatever. That's more of a modern spin. So they're just two words for the same thing. Embryo and fetus. One's Greek, one's Latin. So there you go. But just kind of gee whiz there. Anyways, the fetus was not considered to be human. It was just a part of the mother's body. But even when it was born, though, like I said, it was under the complete authority of the father. It had no legal rights. So the father could always expose the child. What was interesting, what I learned, is that the father's authority was so powerful that even when he exposed the child, let's say a father wants to abandon his child and puts the child in the Colosseum or outside the city walls, and somebody passes by, picks up the child, and adopts the child. The original father, years later, could demand his child back at any time, which I found quite fascinating, that, that the original father, who did not even want his child, could just demand his child back, even when the child is a, is a young teenager or an, an older uh, child. Because again, fathers had absolute power. And this actually discouraged adoption. Because why adopt the child if the father could just demand it back? So that just kind of motivated people to take the children as slaves or prostitutes or 
gladiators or just not take them at all. So, support for abortion. Where do we find support for abortion in and among the ancient Greeks and Romans? Well, one source is Plato. In his Republic, he talked about how we should avoid having too few citizens as well as too many citizens, because too many children leads to poverty and war. So if there are too many children, Plato argues that the government should intervene, should have forced contraception, forced abortion, forced exposure. Aristotle does something similar in his work on politics. He also says that if the population gets too high, measures need to be taken to stimulate. it. And here's what he says, quote, As to exposing or rearing the children born, let there be a law that no deformed child shall be reared. But on the ground of number of children, if the regular customs hinder any of those born being exposed, there must be a limit fixed to the procreation of offspring. And if any people have a child as a result of intercourse in contravention of these regulations, abortion must be practiced on it before it has developed sensation and life. For the line between lawful and unlawful abortion will be marked by the fact of having sensation and being alive, end quote. So that's from Aristotle. And, you know, in general, people tend to like Aristotle. He has a lot of good things to say about virtue, but this is one of his black marks when he basically advocated for forced abortions. Now, he, if you catch that towards the end of his quote, he mentioned the development of sensation in life. And I found this to be interesting also. So for Aristotle and other ancient physicians, it was typically viewed that by the 40th day of pregnancy for a boy and the 90th day for a girl is when sensation and life began. Now, either I'm not entirely sure whether they refer to the, the baby looks like a baby, like physically looks like it and you can tell the gender, or the mother is feeling the sensation and life inside of her at those days. So either way, the argument is, at least from these uh, philosophers, that up until 40 days for a boy, you can abort. Up until 90 days for a girl, you can abort. After that, you can't abort, or you shouldn't abort, but when the baby's born, you can still expose. You can still kill it after the fact if you want to. You just can't abort. So it's, it's a little bit of a contradictory perspective, but it's an interesting one. Now, we're not done yet, though. There's a Roman philosopher named Seneca around 65 AD who said this about unwanted children, quote, Unnatural progeny we destroy. We drown even children who at birth are weakly and abnormal. Yet it is not anger, but reason that separates the harmful from the sound. End quote. So essentially, yeah, he's not he's saying, yeah, we do all these things, but it's not, we're not angry at doing this. It's not anger that drives us to do this. We're using our reason. It's smart to drown and kill the weak and abnormal children. We're not doing it out of malice, but because it's the right thing to do. Now, this is all depressing, right? But there is, thankfully, opposition and criticism to abortion among the pagans, among the ancient Greeks. Hippocrates, around 400 BC, was a Greek doctor where we get the Hippocratic Oath, at first do no harm, right? 
Well, if you read all of his original oath, it included this section, quote, Neither will I administer a poison to anybody when asked to do so, nor will I suggest such a course. Similarly, I will not give to a woman a pessary to cause abortion, but I will keep pure and holy both my life and my art. End quote. So again, he says, as a doctor, um, the right thing to do is not cause abortions. That's part of the Hippocratic Oath in the ancient world, which we have adopted today. We just conveniently leave out that section about not administering abortion. Another Greek historian named Polybius mentioned some very sad aspects as a result of abortion and infanticide. Here's what he has to say about his situation in ancient Greece. Quote, In our own time, the whole of Greece has been subject to a low birth rate and a general decrease of the population, owing to which cities have become deserted and the land has ceased to yield fruit, although there have been neither continuous wars nor epidemics. If then anyone had advised us to ask the gods about this and find out what we ought to say or do to increase in number and make our cities more populous, would it not seem absurd, the cause of the evil being evident and the remedy being in our own hands? For as men had fallen into such a state of pretentiousness, avarice, and indolence, that they did not wish to marry, or if they married, to have any children born to them, or at most, as a rule, but one or two children, so as to leave these in affluence and bring them up to waste their substance, the evil rapidly and sensibly grew, so by small degrees cities became resourceless and feeble. So Polybius there is arguing that here's one problem that we're having. Men aren't getting married, and if they're getting married, they're not really having children. And if they're having children, they're having one or two, so as to basically spend their money and waste it on pleasures. And now we've come to the point where cities are resourceless and feeble and empty, and we don't have any, we don't have any people. So that is, again, 50 BC in Greece. Now, a Roman poet named Ovid, around 15 AD, said this. He said, quote, Of what avail is it that women do not wage war if they wound themselves with their own weapons? She who was the first to abort her own tender fruit deserved to die. Such an act, solely to safeguard one's own beauty, to preserve an unwrinkled belly. Why cheat the full vine of the growing cluster, and pluck with ruthless hand the fruit yet in the green? What is ripe will fall of itself. Let grow what has once become quick. A life is no slight reward for a short delay. Ah, women, why will you thrust and pierce with the instrument, and give dire poisons to your children yet unborn? End quote. So there's a poet lamenting women who are uh, having abortions to preserve their looks or using instruments to kill their unborn children. Another philosopher named Plutarch, Greek philosopher, around 100 AD, argued that it was the duty of all creatures to love and to rear their offspring, not to destroy them. And he says this, quote, for when poor men do not rear their children, it is because they fear that if they are educated less well than is befitting, they will become servile and boorish and destitute of all the virtues. Since they consider poverty the worst of all evils, they cannot endure to let their children share it with them. 
as though it were a kind of disease, serious and grievous, end quote. And then the, the last quote I had here is from a Stoic philosopher around 100 AD named Gaius Musonius Rufus, and here's what he says, quote, How do the little birds, which are poorer than you, feed their young, the swallows and nightingales and larks and blackbirds? Do these creatures surpass man in intelligence? You certainly would not say that. In strength and endurance, then? No, still less in that respect. Well, then, do they put away food and store it up? Not at all. And yet they rear their young and find sustenance for all that are born to them. The plea of poverty, therefore, is unjustified. But what seems to me most monstrous of all, some who do not even have poverty as an excuse, and in spite of prosperity and even riches, are so inhuman as not to rear later-born offspring in order that those earlier born may inherit greater wealth, by such a deed of wickedness planning prosperity for their surviving children. End quote. So again, common theme of later children and wealthy families being killed, aborted, or exposed in order to preserve the wealth of the family and not let it be diluted. These are just some examples of some pagan philosophers and historians, Greek and Roman, who are arguing against infanticide or abortion and trying to do what they can to limit it. Now, what early attempts were there to outlaw it? I mentioned before the laws were put in place to protect and preserve the rights of the father, and that's pretty much what we see until the time of Christianity. So the first laws that were banning abortion were under the emperor Septimus Severus around 200 AD, but again the focus was on the legal rights of the father. Only fathers could kill their children. So anyone who sold um, abortion-inducing drugs to women without the approval of the father were punished, and women were exiled if it was found that they had abortions, again, against the authority of the husband or the father. So that is the situation that we see in ancient Greece and ancient Roman. Um, since we're out of time, what I want to do next time is look at the impact of Christianity in this area, in, in the Roman Empire, to see if anything changes, to see what the Christians argued, and to see um, what things were done about it. And we'll also look at uh, some well-known Jewish uh, philosophers and historians and, and what they argued for uh, and described as well. In many ways, there's nothing new under the sun. It's just a matter of degree and language and style, um, but it's not really any different at all. So hopefully you found this useful. And of course, if you have any questions, thoughts, concerns, or maybe you want to share some of your own research on this, please email me at the GBG podcast at gmail.com or go to Facebook, Instagram. You can contact me uh, that way also. I'm also on gab.com uh, as well. Just look for Governed by God or the GBG podcast. And so I, I look forward to any thoughts that you might have on this. Until next time, take care and bye.